0: Go.
1: Hello, all you leadership educators out there, and welcome to Real Leadership for Real People, the NASPA SLPKC podcast, where we amplify true stories of leadership education. I'm your host, Kathy Guthrie, and I serve as a faculty member in the higher education program at Florida State University.
2: And I'm your co-host, Fichanu. Assistant Professor of Organizational and Community Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. On today's episode, we're joined by Julie Owen, Danielle Reynolds, and Brittany Davies, who will be sharing their thoughts on feminist leadership.
1: Let's get into today's, today's topic, shall we? I'd like to welcome our guests, starting with Julie Owen, who is an Associate Professor of Leadership Studies at the School of Integrative Studies at George Mason University. Thank you so much for joining us today. So excited.
3: Hi, welcome. See
2: everyone. We're also joined by Danielle Reynolds, who is the Assistant Director for Student Learning and Leadership at the University of Michigan's Ginsburg Center for Community Service and Learning. Welcome to the show.
4: Thanks so much. I'm really excited to talk to y'all today.
1: Finally, we have with us today Brittany Davies, who is a doctoral student in the higher education program at Florida State University. Thank you for being here. Excited to be here. Thanks for having
2: us. To get us started, we've prepared a few questions to help the audience get to know you a little better. Uh, Your responses don't have to be lengthy, but these will help us get a sneak peek into your lives. Are you ready to get started?
3: This is the scariest part for me. (laughs) Let's talk about the theory all day long. Like, what are you, what personal questions are you going to ask us? Okay, we're ready.
2: Great. Uh, What song do you love to sing when you're alone in the car?
3: Oh, hmm. I think I'll, I'll kick this one off. I'm a child of the 80s. So I tend to have my radio station stuck on the 80s channel. So this morning, um, going to my workout class, it was purple rain. <laughs> so kind of the older, the better, um, you know, anything that's really uplifting, but you know, I was belting purple rain. With my windows open and got some strange looks from the car next to me. But that's all right. White girl in, you know, suburbia, rocking out. (laughs) So, How about you, uh, Brittany? What what were you listening to? Yeah, I think in honor of
0: Taylor Swift re-recording her old music, I've just (laughs) been revisiting. But um, from the Red album, All Too Well is one that even if people are near me, I am singing out loud. Um, And she's releasing the 10-minute version in November. So stay tuned on a 10-minute song um, of that. But I'll uh, bump the Danielle.
4: I am not a child of the 80s, but I can say that um, my mom raised us on listening to Stevie Wonder, and then I got to see him perform um, in Detroit a few years ago, and it was just a life-changing experience, and so anytime I'm I'm in the car, I'm listening to um, songs from Songs in the Key of Life and usually belting out notes that I technically can't hit, but if you turn the volume up high enough, it seems like Stevie and I are singing together. (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) The
1: second question is if you could only eat one food or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? So, What do you think? I can jump
0: in pizza. It's just pizza. I don't even have a good answer. I just never said no to pizza. So it's pizza for me. So I'll um, pop over to Julie.
3: Yeah, I'm with you. I'm a all carbs all the time, you know, <laughs> so I don't need the protein, you know, vegetables are nice, but uh, pretty much a good loaf of French bread, I could be, maybe be happy forever. How about you, Danielle?
4: I would have to say the easy answer is potatoes, mostly because you can change them into whatever you need them to be that day. So whether it's like a hash brown or a fry or a mashed situation, I'm going to have to go with potatoes.
3: Y'all are making me hungry. We're uh, right. close to lunchtime as we're recording. this. So <laughs> my mind just went elsewhere.
4: <laughs> really do want some fries right now though. So <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about that.
2: All great options. All right. Last, uh, last opening question. Who or what first sparked your interest in leadership?
0: I can jump in i've got three uh, three women i have to really give credit to i think in the education space which most of us operate out of um there's three so the first one i was thinking of this yesterday my second grade teacher mrs white who is the sweetest woman she made a, a little council called kids that care when i was in second grade and it was this collective leadership organization that like served the community with these second graders And it wasn't her just like telling us to go do service projects but rather like What do you all want to do? How would you achieve that? So this collective organization, I think, really changed my framework. And then Kathy Kranak and her group at Ohio State um, accepted me as an 18-year-old to this organization called Mount Leadership Society Scholars in honor of Ruth Weimer Mount. Um, who was the first dean of students at ohio state and and we were about leadership and service to the columbus community Um, and she taught me that leadership was not just having positions that high school had shown me for so long and was the first one to shift my mind and um, not to give too much credit but kathy you were the first one that ever told me that my voice matters in this field not as a student perspective but on the other side right that like my voice and scholarship and my teaching matters. Um, and I think when you start to do that shift in student affairs world that we all operate in, um, it's such a pivotal moment for people when they tell their story, right? Of who finally made them realize they're not just a student anymore, but they can be on the other side, facilitating that for, for many generations to come. So those are the three that come to mind.
4: go Next, um, I would say that uh, growing up, I grew up in a big black church in Metro Atlanta and seeing amazing women who didn't have titles, but were doing incredible work, um, community building work and getting people access to resources that they needed um, that I didn't see that as leadership at at the time. But that's actually so much of what I care about leadership now. Who's doing leadership work that we maybe don't give a title to, that we don't necessarily put in the front of the room um, and seeing that as important leadership work. Um, And so those women who um, I can see their faces. I won't necessarily say their names, but they were so instrumental to me and in, um, in becoming the woman that I am today. Um, I would also say that uh, being at the University of Georgia, working with the Center for Leadership and Service, people asked me really hard questions while I was there. Um, and those hard questions, sometimes I put together an answer. A lot of times, I didn't. And and not having an answer, but wrestling through those questions. I think that I learned a lot about who I am, who I want to be in the world, and how I want to contribute to community. Um, And then the last one that I will say is Patty Cunningham at Ohio State, who um, taught me an incredible amount. I could get emotional talking about how much Patty taught me um, about what it means to show up, what it means to do work in community with other people, and what it means to truly care about um, the spaces that you're in and the people that you're working with. And so definitely would say that she sparked an interest in a commitment to doing um, leadership that is justice focused and justice oriented.
3: Oh, that is so beautiful, Danielle and Brittany. It's so neat to hear about people are, the young influences. Reminds me of the leadership identity development model. I'm like plotting where you are on that as you're telling your stories. Um, I'm uh, I'm keen to leadership through service as well. I've always been involved with a community based on my family and my church and those kinds of things. And it wasn't until college, I sort of had a very traditional leaders are the man who maybe hold people down kind of over there. Um, and I had a Dean of students, Sam Sadler at College of William & Mary who said, what if leadership was this? And he handed me a mimeograph, like an old school copy of one of the first drafts of the social change model. And, and sort of totally just being exposed to that shifted my thinking about that leadership could be something that was inclusive and so. Sort of, I call it a road to Damascus moment where I was like, oh, that was my job. Like, commitment leadership didn't have to be um, people commanding, controlling others. Um, I want to ask Kathy and B all these questions, too. I know we're going to be quick on time, but.
1: No, I love that, Julie. I mean, I came to leadership through service as well. And I remember my first time because I think we're right at the same age. And when social change model, I was actually at a NASPA convention when there were individuals talking about it for the first time. And I was sitting there going, Oh my goodness, this is pivotal. This is, and I remember I have that that book. I still have it on my bookshelf, It's like purple on a typewriter. Like someone, (laughs) I I can probably dig it out, but I won't (laughs) just show you to be like, yes, this is what it is. But no, these are all, this is so important to really um, kind of pull behind the curtain and get to know you all, because I think that does show the people that you are and, you know, it's really getting into today's topics, even hearing your answer, especially to that last question really shows insight. And so for context, the three of you co-authored a chapter in the recently published "Shifting the Mindset, Socially Just Leadership Education. So can you briefly summarize your chapter for us just to give our listeners a sense of what they can expect when they read your piece?
3: Uh, Sure. Yes. We are so honored, first of all, to be invited to be part of this volume, which is so I so needed. Um, It's kind of amazing how long leadership studies and leadership education has gone without sort of grappling with these important questions of identity and justice and intersectionality. Um, So the three of us were just beyond thrilled to be able to sort of have this make space to think about this. So thank you all both for that, first of all. Um, This is a tough challenge, right? So we wanted to summarize everything we knew about feminism and gender, and then also uh, critical scholarship and the culturally relevant leadership learning model, and also uh, critical leadership studies. <laughs> so, and we only had a few thousand more to do. I think uh, Brittany was taught you earlier. I think our first outline was about 15 pages. And I want to give, I think it was Danielle who was coined our title. She had this brilliant thought that said, you know, what we really need here is to get programs and schools to go beyond just adding a little bit of stuff about women, you know, half a class or you know, mini lecture and then moving on to sort of teaching leadership as usual. So just want to give her the credit for asking that instead of saying what we really do is analyze, critique and reconstruct programs. So they challenge that intertwined sexist, racist, classist structures that shape Student leadership learning. And so that is the call we try to make in our chapter. Um, and we, instead of proposing answers, uh-huh, we asked a lot of we used an interrogatory, which is a fancy faculty way of saying a, a question that you're asking kind of format. Uh, but we think these questions that we created um, will be really useful to use the students and other kinds of spaces and places, as well as to ask of ourselves. Um, and we base those questions around the elements of the culturally relevant leadership learning model and grounded all in critical feminist theory. So that's kind of what we did. Um, So the CRL, the culturally relevant leadership learning um, elements are identity, efficacy, capacity, but also beyond sort of individual leadership development, historical, behavioral, compositional, psychological, and structural dimensions of leadership, and how critical feminism intertwines, intersects with those dimensions. So it was a really challenging task, um, but we, uh, we think we have something that's provocative at the very least, and hope that we hear from people about whether it's useful for them or not. I'll stop there. We'll go to the next question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I was going to say, V and I remember when you sent us that draft and we're like, oh, this is so good, but you have to cut like a lot, (laughs) put it aside because you had such brilliant. And so thank you for that overview. But I think that is powerful when you have a ton of (laughs) information that it's like, okay, how do you put it into something that's digestible for all? So
2: Yeah, thank you all so much for your contributions to the book, and certainly um, as you've got extra material, things that you weren't able to maybe fit in the chapter, I can't wait to see uh, where that eventually finds a home. Uh, Shifting just a little bit, I was hoping that maybe each of you could share just a little bit more about how your lived experiences, these could be personal experiences, these could be professional experiences, um, have shaped your understanding of leadership and leadership practice.
0: Yeah, I can start us off. Also, Kathy was being generous. They had to cut over half of like was suggested to cut over half of it because it was a very long draft y'all. But I can go ahead and start us off. I think in addition to that last iceberg question, which I think really primed kind of where all of us were operating from, at least in early leadership messages that we got and maybe the first people that kind of challenged them, right? Um, We spent our first three or four meetings just talking deeply about what we were as a collective what we wanted to accomplish. We didn't write any words for like the first month. Like we, <laughs> there was no drafting, there was no outlining. Um, it was simply Julie Daniel and I coming together and saying like, who are we to write this? And if we are, Um, how can we make sure it's the most inclusive and accessible piece that we can be, especially within a volume that is exploring so many identities. So um, we first wrestled with the fact that we're three cisgender women writing the women's chapter, right? What does that mean? Um, For especially the current moment, and we were writing this for context, y'all, in kind of end of 2019, early 2020 was when a lot of this drafting was. So as you all know, the country was grappling with some of um, these questions too. What does it mean for cis women to continue the conversation on feminism? So we wrestled with some of that um, in our early pieces of what is our own bias? What's our approach to the chapter going to be? That we can both name and hold that, while also challenge what cis women have continued to perpetuate um, in some of these spaces, especially white cisgender women. So, in that conversation, we um, agree definitely that it was non-negotiable that this chapter was grounded in, in an intersectional approach, right? That it undergirded all of our approach, while also acknowledging we couldn't we couldn't tackle every identity, right? Women hold so many identities all the time when they navigate our college campuses, and we can't do it all. So Kathy and Vi, I want to give you credit that when we came to you in Panic, you shared the other chapters that would be in the book and some of the other people that we'd be writing, some of our trusted colleagues that we knew would also incorporate women into their chapters on different racial identities, ethnic identities, um, different student development kind of um, identities that are held in those spaces too. So we knew women would also have other places in the book um, to be explored, which definitely eased some of our concern that we couldn't do all things um, and make a mini book within the book. So that was one piece that we definitely went into one thing we also um, both valued and challenged was that uh, Julie is a tenure faculty member, Danielle is a practitioner, and I was an early doc student when we were writing this, which led to some really brilliant conversations, right, about our different places in the academy, our relationships with the academy, how our students approach us in the academy to have these conversations, but also acknowledging our privilege that we were all educated and, and talking to students in educated spaces, and oftentimes that women don't have access to even getting to the spaces we were writing about creating leadership education within. Um, so some of that was what we held and challenged. I think when we finally got down to it, the culture relevant leadership learning model was the one model that let us have some structure to all the things we wanted to tackle and wrestle with our own identities and the ones that we didn't hold and wanted to honor. Um, so the domains of that with the questions Julie had mentioned, there's 14 questions on the sheet and I can't wait to give this to my students to... <laughs> um, again, they're questions that have no answers but they're worth conversation, right? I think is what we frame them from of we don't have the answers to them and we can't find them in a literature but we want you all to start talking about them and creating scholarship i often think that many of them could be dissertations in themselves <laughs> so feel free to take them as your research questions folks that are listening um so some of that critical conversation and you know some of that led to what danielle talked about that women of color in our college campuses historically have not been called leaders because they've been called activists or doing service or um causing trouble back in history right of uh, that was a lot of what the history books were saying about women of color, but we knew they were leading now in our you know, 2021 lens, um, but how do we question that now and what the lasting impacts of that are on campus? Or how do we have cruel conversations about policies that are restricting women from joining organizations or seeking leadership in office, even on our student affairs side? Um, so that's a very long one to answer for a lot of hard conversation we had over a, a month and, and much longer um, as we wrote the chapter.
1: Well, and I'm sure y'all are still having those conversations, right? Because that is something that we continually need to reengage, especially as we're seeing what's happening in the world around us right? daily. And so, thank you for sharing sharing that. As you had mentioned earlier, and Julie, you mentioned this a little bit in um, or started to in kind of the overview of the chapter. You know, can you talk a little bit about what influenced or informed your thinking? for this chapter or your approach to this work that's outside of leadership education? I started going there, but I would love to hear more about your thoughts and outside of leadership
4: education. Yeah, I can say some things about that. I know that um, we, in our conversations talked a lot about a lot of things and things that were going on in our lives, but also things that we're interested in and that were making us think, things that were making us feel uncomfortable. Um, And in those conversations, they were just really generative um, to what we wanted this chapter to capture. And so one of the things that I think we spent a lot of time kind of talking about was Black feminist thought and what it means for us to engage in some of these critical questions. And like Brittany said, some of the questions do not, a lot of the questions don't have answers. They're not easy answers by any means, but it's actually in trying to answer those questions to digging into them dialectically and dialogically with other people that we start to see meaning come forward. And that's when we start to actually make, um, make change, hopefully. Um, And then also another piece was holding people accountable to their politics. And so for us that showed up in the feedback that we gave each other, um, how we gave each other feedback, the questions that we asked each other, the ways that we kind of in some ways corrected some things or um, challenged some things that were coming up and seeing that as incredibly generative as well. um, And that that's some of the way that we were um, really hoping to um, embody that, Um, school of thought into what the chapter became, um, and hopefully we're successful in it, Um, and then I would just say another thing, maybe because I'm rereading this book now, but um, Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, we did a lot of future talking in our conversations as well, and so this idea or this image of someone leaving something that is Um, has this false sense of security you feel secure there you feel knowledgeable in that space and moving past it into something that maybe is not as secure you're not as knowledgeable, but it's far more liberatory um, and seeing that as worthwhile work that that was something that I would say also informed some of our conversations. Yes, there's lots more that I could say, but I think that for now, those are two things that that come to mind for me that they inform our thinking and practice, but also some of the conversations we were having.
2: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's so incredibly helpful. I think lots of times when I read chapters, not unlike yours, all I see is the tip of the iceberg. I see the finished product, I see the published, edited copy. I don't see all of the thinking, all of the wrangling, all of the intellectual and emotional gymnastics that authors and author teams have to perform to get their ideas onto the printed page. So I I really want to appreciate all of you pulling back the curtain a bit so that we can see um, what goes into that. thinking a little bit about the physical gymnastics people might have to do to actually put these ideas into practice. Um, I was hoping that you could share a little bit about how you see your chapter as a piece of practical scholarship, which might be able to be applied to various crises on our our campuses and in our communities.
3: Absolutely. I wanna add one more thing to that conversation we just had, which is about, none of that could happen without trust, right? Um, And there's an old book title called leadership is at the speed of trust, which is something I want to like steal for um, uh, or talk to my class about all the time, but all all of that challenge can only happen in a place where we had built trust um, to kind of have those hard and critical conversations. Um, that invited our own reflection, but yes, I'm going to just honor here Brittany as a voice of practicality. So whenever I would go off down my little rabbit hole, uh, she would be like, "Well, this is what women today are talking about." Or so she just I felt like um, as someone who is an early career scholar had a pulse on so much more about what's happening. She so always sending us um, sort of good reads and lists, things that happen on TikTok. I don't know um, <laughs> about this. So this is a piece of practice. I really do. So I, I appreciate that reminder of us to get back to practice. Um, I believe, and I don't want to speak for the other authors on this, that you know, we're at a moment of cultural reckoning, um, you know, that we have a dire need for inclusive and representative leadership in the world. And so um, why Center of Feminism? I and mean, we are not in a post- Patriarchal post-racial society yet, at least not as the way I experienced it or see others experience it. So we need to continue to kind of get into um, issues of power, equity, inclusion. And uh, you know, there's some interesting research that 80% of people in the United States hold feel like uh, people should treat the sexes equally, yet only 25% would identify as a feminist. So what is that gap between? that sort of value congruence, and yet the labels kind of push people apart. So to me, the answer to that is in the pragmatic, right, it's in the practice. And so we end the chapter with a couple of things we suggest people do. Um, The first one is elevate and amplify diverse voices in leadership learning, like who are actually, what is in our canon? And it tends to be a lot of cis white men um, who did groundbreaking important work and um, represent a certain uh, uh, point of view, right? And we need more points of view. So how do we sort of branch out and find um, uh, scholars and readings that uh, um, are more inclusive? Uh, we suggest that people consider the effects of campus climate on gender and leadership for practitioners, especially those in student affairs and faculty world. Um, But, you know, institutions of higher ed are gendered spaces whether you're at a single sex college or not. Um, So what is the role of women um, um, women identifying people at the institution where you work? are pioneering women honored on your campus? What vestiges of gendered approaches still exist? Um, what spaces and places are affirming to women's experiences and women's leadership? What about to genderqueer and non-binary individuals? So we sort of ask people to do their own sort of cultural um, archaeology, you know, about where these gendered messages around leadership show up, because some of them are really insidious, right? They're they're hidden, um, and then we steal from the brilliant. Um, Shay and Wren, Heather Shay and Chris Wren, who uh, wrote a piece about, we suggest people shift from a feminine to a feminist way of leading, um, which I love that language is like, we need to move past this idea that there's a women's way of leading and it's caring and nurturing collaborative and everything else is men's leadership. Like that's just not how it rolls. Um, we're more complicated than that. We have women who are agentic, assertive, Um, leaders, and we have men who practice caring, collaborative, and all kinds of people don't identify with that binary at all, right? So um, they suggest we stop talking about feminine leadership and anchor ourselves in feminist kinds of ways of leading, which include sort of subverting power structures that exist to make places that are more inclusive, complicating difference, so we're not looking at this gender binary, um, which almost all of the prevailing leadership literature Prior to the last few years, is very binary. It's like all of the analysis; it's really even based on sex, not gender. So, um, so much of the research we build our work on is flawed. And then, how do we center and enact social change? So, I'm going to stop there. And then we sort of end a little bit with like how we develop liberatory consciousness. That's a whole nother podcast. Yes. But so we do think these are practical tools that people can do um, on their own campuses with their own populations.
1: Can you talk more about the liberatory consciousness? So sure. you dropped that and then, <laughs> <laughs> anyone, I mean, I think this is something that is so important, especially when we're thinking about how does this show up on our campuses? So if you could talk, if you could expand on that.
3: Yes, and this is Love's work from 2013, but she states that anyone who's committed to changing systems and institutions to create greater equity and justice must have a liberatory consciousness. Um, and this is the only way that you can exist in oppressive systems. So we know that our systems are silencing people and um, how do we persist in them? You know, and instead of just leaving systems that are not perfect or not perfectly inclusive, so how do we sort of maintain um, our own intentionality and awareness rather than submit to those forces of socialization? So we all existed in this impressive system. How do we sort of acknowledge it exists and yet still find ways to make inroads and find communities of uh, that are justice and equity centered within those spaces? Um, so, how do we maintain an awareness of the dynamics of oppression without giving into despair and hopelessness? To me, that's the magical language I had. I could never articulate it that particular way, um, but I don't know if um, Brittany or Danielle had thoughts on that too. I know that you all talked a lot about this. Sorry, I'm throwing this at you. Surprise!
4: <laughs> I think that um, I would just add to the liberatory consciousness the importance of engaging in that tradition of asking questions. I think that that's the thing. I'm just going to leave this podcast that we have to ask the hard questions and we have to engage with them um, because a lot of this, in a, if we're looking back at this practical sense, this is not easy. When you're a practitioner and you are putting together a budget or you're putting together a retreat that's around women's leadership, a lot of times the people that you are submitting things to or the people that are asking you questions are coming with this like binary, you um, thinking or expectation about what you're doing. And so we don't want to dismiss that this isn't really hard um, and that we're also wrestling sometimes with some outside voices telling students how they should be thinking about about gender identity. And so for us, it's how do we um, develop this consciousness, this foundation in ourselves so that we are in a space where we're not like given over into despair or not able to ask the hard questions, engage in the hard questions, and sometimes provide an on-ramp for students that it's not always a, hey, you did this one retreat and now you're completely changed, you're a different person, but maybe the thing that we are doing is just going to plant that seed and we have to, again, trust that other educators, other experiences are going to cultivate, fertilize, and um, hopefully see some of the harvest of the um, of the learning that, um, that students are going to have. And so I do see it as something that is a part of a longer tradition, not necessarily from higher education, but in other spaces where people are telling stories, engaging in hard conversations and learning in ways that are going to hopefully bring all of us towards liberation. Um, but that's, yeah, that's just something that I was thinking about for that.
0: Yeah, I'm building off of Julie, Danielle, real quick. I know we need to move to the next one, but I I think with us in this approach too is um, leadership educators know this, people that listen to the podcast know this, but we are oftentimes the ones teaching students how to ask questions about what they're seeing and consuming. And I think for us, that was really important, right? Not just on campus, but what does it mean that no one may have asked the student, like, what does it mean that Kamala Harris is our vice president of the United States? What does that mean, right? Like, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to us? What does that mean to policy? What does it mean for the history of, of this office, what does that do to make that meaning making? Because these examples already exist. We don't need to always craft new case studies or bring those pieces in. But I think if what I hear my students say, and I know Julie and Danielle's students will test this too, is learning how to ask the questions, they don't see things the same again. Like when they're on TikTok or when they're on these places, they consume media with different lenses that will then challenge notions of like I was just reading a mission statement the other day from an institution that said, you know, we um, develop men and women to do this. And I look at it and I say, well, well what? The- what about everybody else? <laughs> Who are you missing in that, in that mission statement? But you know, had I not had great leadership educators to teach me to ask those critical questions, I may have just skimmed past that and moved, moved on with my day. And I think if we can do that for students with that question asking, with developing how to ask good questions, and again, questions that may not have answers, um, but just knowing how to ask them and what to ask, I think is really critical um, and undergirds a lot of our findings
3: um, or recommendations, I guess, at the end of the chapter. You know, I want to say one more thing. Just I sorry, Kathy, I chime in one more time just to say um, I don't know if folks haven't read Edgar Schein's book, *Humble Inquiry*. And I keep I feel like I'm proselytizing again. It's like one of my favorite. It's actually a written in pragmatic language. It's like something you could give um, your community organization, your family member, etc. But it makes this compelling argument for shifting from. Like we don't get very far actually with an advocating perspective this is what we deserve this is what we need we get much farther but with an inquiry perspective and i don't know why it took me till i'm in my 50s to figure out to shift from in you know from advocacy to inquiry but it's been so it's actually worked too it's, it's not just a, a more inclusive idea but it's also um to me effective and like getting things done and making spaces because if you i can tie my interest with your interests, we get to a place that's better. Um, and they also have uh, evolved, and they also have a humble leadership book now too. So, just highly recommend that that work. And Brittany always makes me think about that with her increasing.
1: Sorry, Kathy. Go ahead. Oh no, no. Well, and it's I actually, Julie, you introduced me to that book years ago, so I appreciate. But thinking about how the idea of learning and coming to space with questions, and Danielle, you said that in the beginning, how Georgia, really, your time at University of Georgia, those questions, and sometimes when you sit and you can't answer them. Right. I mean, I don't have an answer. That's when I know the biggest growth in the learning for me occurs is when I'm like, I don't have an answer for that. And I have an eight-year-old daughter that she asks questions. She's in this space. And some of the questions that she asks, you would think that they would be fairly simple. Right. And I'm doing the air quotes and I'm, I don't know, I have no idea. And then it makes me pause and I think if we all could be doing that right to pause and to come with that inquiry and so I hope that educators are really thinking about how are we doing that with all of our programs and and how does that show up on campuses and so I have another question for you all of course is where do you see this work going next?
0: What a loaded question right excuse me I um well we mentioned a few times right that the the, we have 15, 20 pages of drafting work that is sitting in a, a Dropbox or a Google Drive somewhere um, that needs a home. So I think for the three of us, our immediate thought is how can we find that uh, Mo's up writing is actually what um, those five domains Julia mentioned from the CRL model, what do they look like on our campuses for women? Like, right, like what are women running into with a historical um, legacy of inclusion, exclusion. Women were in a lot of colleges for a very long time. We know this, Um, but what does that mean? The lasting impact of how women see themselves not in statues on campus, or what does it mean that they you know, may have their first female president coming into their institution this year. Um, What do those lasting impacts mean for women, how they see leadership on their campuses. So I think finding that a home would be great. If anyone has one, feel free (laughs) to find our emails and let us know if there's a good place for that. Um, I think also both my colleagues would agree that um, I think we've seen some shifting towards this, but I think the more that we can shift towards it is great. It's the writing, the research and creating more accessible scholarship on intersectional feminism and intersectional women's identities. it's definitely shifting there. I know a lot of dissertations and early work are starting to come around. You know, how do I hold, um, you know, accessibility and my gender identity together and what do they mean um, for the way that operate, especially in college campuses? Um, so I think we're shifting there, which is really great, but I would love to see more and, and more voices and especially practitioner voices because we know um, folks that work in the academic space kind of um, oftentimes will have more access to maybe resources to do that, but we love to see more practitioners I've seen kind of the in-the-day work of that too. I also know most... Um, all three of us really value making this stuff accessible, right? So this free podcast is a great, a great way to start. Um, but even thinking of, can we have conferences that are more accessible? I think the virtual space has taught us that we can, right? And, and accessible webinars and, and things too, where yes, we can publish in journals, um, but if people are not on campuses, they may not have access. So how do we make sure that we can get that work? out, um, especially for folks that are doing this day to day and having conversation. And I selfishly um, would love to see some more theories and models as much as we have moved away from theories and models. I think people are still using them to guide a lot of work and there are not a lot on women's uh, identities especially college women's leadership identity. Um, So selfishly, I would love to see some literature on that and start seeing us in like the, you know the student development theories textbooks and seeing our students represented uh, more in those spaces. So my co-authors can feel free to jump in but I know that some of the stuff that we've talked about about where we hope this comes next. And we have a lot of brilliant colleagues across the country that are starting to do some of this writing.
4: Mm-hmm. And I would say to even push in deeper that um, we talked a lot about and are really hoping that what comes next isn't just compositional changes and seeing more um, cisgender women in leadership. Um, I think that what we also said was, how do we also hold those folks accountable to feminist leadership? It's not just, and I think we saw a lot of this during the pandemic, that oh, only the the women-led countries were hitting these metrics with the pandemic, or look at what a woman leader can do, that that's a nice story sometimes. But it's really important for us to also think about where are the ways that um, someone is using their own um, position or is practicing leadership in ways that are going to create liberation for everyone. Um, And so, yes, we can have the the moment of this is the first woman president to do this, or this is the first woman to do X, Y, or Z. But there comes a time, and we are advocating for it to be now, where we say, that is great, and we are going to hold you to account to practice um, leadership for liberation. That what you are doing has to meet these different metrics. It has to include these different people that have historically been marginalized by our leadership practices, um, by our policies, um, by our institutions. Um, And so giving folks and cultivating in ourselves the tools and the skills to be able to hold folks to account in that way. And sometimes it's through inquiry and Sometimes it's through asking those questions of ourselves, holding ourselves in our offices accountable to those pieces, even down to the um, like the eligibility requirements for a program, how might we be changing those things in ways that are also um, going to create space for more people to join? Um, and so those are, that's another thing that I think I would add is yes, we wanna see more, but we also wanna see more for the purpose of liberation.
3: Yes, Danielle. Sorry, every time you all talk, I get so inspired. <laughs> it makes me, like you said, we have to do our own work, right? As well, um, so we don't even know our blinders. You know they, they're invisible for a reason. We, you know, they're um, embedded in us. So how do we sort of step back and find those places where we're biopic in ways? Um, I just wanna give one more shout out just to be specific. Um, Trisha Tai, who's another of Kathy's uh, uh, former students who's doing amazing work in this area. She and Brittany and a group of others, I think there's five institutions now are working on a new book around women's narratives um, and we're gathering actual narratives from um, women in women in leadership courses across the country. So really excited to see that piece um, and to um, that whole point about how do we um, hear stories that aren't our story. And so I'm really excited for what that piece might look like. So I just wanted to give Trisha and her team a shout out.
1: And you can watch out for it in 2023 because it will be published in (laughs)
2: Yeah, that that's so great to hear that there are so many people um, who as a result of, you know, representation and accessibility and accountability are more activated, right? More inspired, more motivated, because the work, as we know, is difficult and it's it's never really done uh, in a lot of important ways. So thinking a little bit about that inspiration and motivation, I wanted to, as we're wrapping up our time together, ask each of you, what what protects your hope for the future of socially just leadership education?
4: I can start off, and this won't be shocking to Brittany or Julie. But what something that gives me hope is seeing healthy skepticism around um, what leadership looks like right now. I think I've been chuckling at some of the things I've seen on um, Twitter and TikTok about like critiquing the idea of the girl boss um, and highlighting the ways that sometimes that concept just gives light to some really unhealthy practices and ways of being in community. Um, and so seeing some of that healthy skepticism, I think it's like, if the ground is ready, we're cultivating this space where we can be planting seeds um, for leadership learning that is, you know, going to contribute hopefully to like more inclusive spaces and um, people who are doing this deep learning and then going to contribute to their communities in ways that are hopefully going to, you know, bring change that we want to see. Um, so. That I don't know that a lot of people see skepticism as something that brings them hope, but that is how I, I see it. Um, and I think that that honestly is a reflection of that critical hope concept that Julie had mentioned earlier, um, that when we see things, we say, you know what, we're going to keep working at it. Um, we're going to work with others towards it um, and seeing that as something, you know, that inspires us to, to keep going.
0: I can jump in. I've got a narrative um, that leads into my what gives me good hope. But um, i use Dr. Owen, Julie Owen, on this uh, call. I use her book in my gender and leadership class at Florida State for the first time this um, school year because it was came out in 2020. But um, I had a student stay after class and was emotional and said it was the first time they had seen themselves in a textbook before. And I don't know how to respond to that. I still, I mean, it's been like a year. I, I still don't know how to respond to that, um, to the student right of uh, this, the We Are the Leaders We've Been Waiting For plug for the book. Please, look, please look at it. But um, the students say that I've never seen myself in a textbook before, and thank you for including it. Um, and it makes me emotional, but I think what that gives me good hope for is I think this field is moving to being less student responsive and just having students drive what we need to be doing, right? Like again, our students have been telling us for decades that they want intersectional scholarship on how they develop. And they, they know this and they're finding it on TikTok and they're finding it in their accessible free places to connect. Um, I have a student who has become an influencer on TikTok talking about these things much deeper than I knew them. Right, <laughs> They're coming to my classroom and teaching oftentimes their own way in their small groups and in the large group of, of things that I don't know about because they're not my lived experiences to share. Um, so I think what more that we can move towards students telling us we have been talking about this so if you all want to catch up to us that's great because we've already been doing it right we know this with our student activists um, especially our students of color on campuses are having these critical conversations and it's time for the rest of our field to just catch up Um, so I think we're finally getting to a place where we might be more closely aligning and hopefully we can start to move forward right Um, and and lean into the critical theory and black feminist thought and all these these, um, pieces of literature that we just haven't applied so deeply to our fields. I'm hoping that is where we're moving and more books like Julie's and more books like Shifting the Mindset um, that are putting students at the forefront and talking about their lived experiences in ways that we know exist and we see every day that are not making accessible um, in the ways they need to be.
3: Um, yeah, our listeners can't see me, but I just welled up. That was like the kindest thing, Brittany. Thank you for sharing that. I never heard that story, so now I'm all, Emotional, (laughs) which I embrace. I'm trying to sit in that. So thank you for those beautiful words and testimonies. And um, it's a product of all of the contributions of the people um, who worked on it. We also have a facilitation guide coming out. So Women in Leadership of Facilitation Guide through Stylists coming out any day now. It should be this fall semester at the latest um, that has practical uh, tips on how to implement some of these ideas, both in student affairs places and classroom spaces. Um, but for me, I agree I'm echoing my esteemed colleagues here, um, but the thing that gives me hope is these early career scholars who are reshaping the field, they're not accepting business or leadership as usual, right, they're not accepting it, um, and they are demanding that we sort of account for our power um, and uh, equity and create more equitable spaces in leadership education so critical leadership studies and critical critical leadership education won't just be a sidebar anymore we're gonna, it's going to be centered in the work that we do and so that's my vision and, and um, that i have learned from folks who are calling this question so clearly and so cogently so i'm i'm learning a lot and excited to see where this field goes in the next few
1: Oh, thank you all so much. Uh, just appreciate Julie, Danielle, Brittany, just your time, your energy, your brilliance, and sharing it with us in this space. So thank you.
3: Thank you all. We can't wait to hear the different episodes and read the book. Uh, can't wait to see the different narratives. And the podcast is going to kind of bring those chapters to life, right? So we're really excited to be part of this.
0: Yes. Yes. I'm excited to subscribe and see them once they start releasing. I'm excited.
2: all right please join us next time on real leadership for real people where we will continue to explore socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning
1: until then keep it real out there